the companies strive to have 50% of the calories coming from fat. So you get this phenomena of mouthfeel in your, in your mouth and the product melts. But when it does that, the melted product sort of sends the signal to the brain that says that the calories in the product have disappeared as well. The industry calls this the vanishing caloric density. Good afternoon, everybody. At least it's afternoon for me. Uh, this is Mike from Most for Life and Legion Athletics. And here we are with another episode of the podcast. And this time around, I interview Michael Moss, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who works for the New York Times and who's also the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Salt, Sugar, Fat. Now, this interview is about the processed food industry, which generates a trillion dollars in sales every year, which even surprised me a little bit. I mean, obviously, I knew it's a huge industry, but I didn't realize it's that big. Trillion dollars a year with a T. And of course, what they specialize in is creating inexpensive, highly processed foods that are hyper palatable and hyper gratifying and thanks mainly to the advances of food science, these massive corporations have absolutely mastered the art of making foods and beverages that can just hit the spot in ways that natural, nutritious foods never will. And that's why these companies' products are so much harder to resist than anything you might find on the produce aisle on the outskirts of the grocery store and why they're so much easier to overeat as well. And as you will hear, Michael is going to give us a rather fascinating glimpse into just how much work goes into engineering and marketing these products, how the leaders of the processed food industry view themselves in relation to the meteoric rise of obesity and disease, like how they view their role in it, their responsibility, how we might go about breaking our dependency on highly processed foods and much more. Now, before we dive into this episode, I have to shill for something to pay the bills, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not big on promoting stuff that I don't personally use and really believe in. So instead, I am going to just quickly tell you about something of mine. Specifically, my hugely popular and 100% natural pre-workout supplement, Pulse. It has sold over 250,000 bottles in the last several years, and it increases energy, improves mood, sharpens mental focus, increases strength and endurance, and reduces fatigue without the unwanted side effects that you probably experience with many other pre-workouts or the dreaded post-workout crash. It's also naturally sweetened and flavored and contains no artificial food dyes, fillers, or other unnecessary junk. And all of that is why Pulse has over 3,100 reviews on Amazon with a four and a half star average and another 500 plus reviews on my website, also with a four and a half star average. So if you want to feel focused, tireless, and powerful in your workouts, and if you want to say goodbye to the pre-workout jitters, upset stomachs, and crashes for good, then you want to head over to www.legionathletics.com and pick up a bottle of Pulse today. And if you're not sure which flavor to get, I highly recommend Blue Raspberry. It's my personal favorite. 
And just to show how much I appreciate my podcast peeps, use the coupon code podcast at checkout and you will save 10% on your entire order. And lastly, you should also know that I have a very simple 100% money back guarantee that works like this. You either love my stuff or you get your money back, period. You don't have to return the products. You don't have to fill out forms. You don't have to jump through any other hoops or go through any other shenanigans. So you really can't lose here. Head over to www.legionathletics.com now place your order and see for yourself why my supplements have thousands of rave reviews all over the internet. And if for whatever reason, they're just not for you, contact us and we will give you a full refund on the spot. Alrighty, that is enough shameless plugging for now at least. Let's get to the show. Michael, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, you bet. Great to talk to you. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm happy to have you in particular because this is a this is something that's been kind of sitting on my list to uh, do an episode on. And some episodes I just kind of do myself and monologue and ramble about things. And other episodes I like to find people like you who know a lot more than me about whatever it is we're talking about and have you explain to me and everybody else how uh, how it works. So this is going to be good. Thanks. Uh, I look forward. So let's just start at the top. And um, it's, again, I myself, I'm just kind of curious. Can you give us a little behind the scenes uh, kind of take on how food manufacturers, and this has obviously been probably getting progressively worse, I would assume, over the last many decades, but how food manufacturers are creating foods and formulating foods to make them hyper palatable and of course, then easier to overeat and maybe even addictive. That's obviously a word that's thrown around a lot, uh, thrown around a lot. So what's your take on that? And, and you know, how, what's the history too? Because it seems like, again, from the past many decades, we're going from foods that used to kind of naturally taste good to foods that don't really taste that good. And then we have to add more and more things, trying to make them taste good. Yeah, it's hard to know kind of when it started. I, I write about the Kellogg's company, which was actually started by a physician, um, or rather the precursor to that was a, was a health spa out in Battle Creek, Michigan, founded by a physician named Harvey Kellogg, who who hated sugar and would hmm. bring people in and would basically give them a cleanse. And this is at the turn of the 18th century between, between uh, 1800 and 1900. And, you know, he came up with a few foods that he would serve his clients. And one of them was like a breakfast kind of granola thing as, a, as an alternative to kind of the heavy, meat-heavy, fat-heavy foods that people were maybe in, you know, grease-heavy food at the time. You know, it was an okay kind of cereal, but... He had a younger brother, and when, when Dr. Kellogg was off traveling once, the younger brother, Will, um, who was kind of the accountant for the spa, slipped something into the cereal that made it absolutely irresistible to the clientele. And that something, of course, was sugar. And you can sort of trace the advent of the processed food industry's reliance on sugars and fats and salt to kind of that moment and a big brotherly fight broke out that ended up in court a couple of times and ultimately will won and the Kellogg company was born as well as as this concept of of sugary breakfast cereals some of what makes them so successful in, in getting us to be overly dependent on their products is kind of this extraordinary science that they use in crafting the perfect amounts of salt, sugar, fat. So it's not just like they 
dump gobs and gobs of sugar into things without thinking about them. And I was really fortunate to sort of meet the acquaintance of an icon in the industry. His name is Howard Moskowitz. He was trained in high math at Queens College and then experimental psychology at Harvard. And he walked me through his creation of a new flavor of soda for Dr. Pepper, in which he started out with no less than 60 versions of sweetness, each one just slightly different than the next one in terms of the sweetness level, subjected those to 3,000 consumer taste tests around the country, and then did his math thing and threw them in his computer and came up with this high math regression analysis formula. And out came charts that look like these bell-shaped curves that kids get graded on at school, except at the top of the chart is not the dreaded middle C. It's the perfect amount of sweetness, not too little, not too much. And it was Howard who coined the term the bliss point to describe the perfect amount of sweetness in foods that would send us over the moon and their products flying off the shelf. And when you talk to nutritionists, the problem isn't that they've engineered bliss points and things that we know and expect to be sweet. The food companies have marched around the grocery store adding sugar to things that didn't used to be sweet before. So now yogurt can have as much sugar in it per serving as ice cream. Bread has added sugar for a bliss point for sweetness. And one of my favorite spots in the grocery store is the spaghetti sauce aisle where some of the brands can have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies worth of sweetness in a tiny half cup serving. And what this has done is created this expectancy in us that everything we eat should be sweet. So when you drag yourself or, you know, Lord help you, your little kids over to the produce aisle and try to get them to eat some of those things we all should be eating more of and they get some bitter notes or some sour notes, you're going to have a rebellion on your hands because they are, their taste buds are demanding sweetness. From the, I guess, the bigger picture, of course, caloric intake has been rising over the last several decades as well. And I'm sure that is tightly correlated with just sugar intake on the whole because you can eat kind of the same foods over time, but they tend to have more and more calories. Yeah. And to be denser. And, and the industry has sort of even figured out ways to do with this. I have to say, I fell in love with the language that they use to kind of describe their efforts to kind of maximize the allure of their products. And they, at one point, they kind of realize this amazing thing sort of happens in your brain when you eat something like a cheese puff. Um, because when you put it in your mouth and press it against the roof of your mouth with your tongue, it kind of disappears, it melts. And that's one of the magical equations of snack foods, especially is that they, the companies strive to have 50% of the calories coming from fat. So you get this phenomena of mouthfeel in your, in your mouth and the product melts. But when it does that, the melted product sort of sends the signal to the brain that says that the calories in the product have disappeared as well. The industry calls this the vanishing caloric density. And as far as your brain is concerned, you know, the break is off and you might as well eat that whole bag of cheese puffs because it's not going to um, put any fat on your body. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's amazing <laughs> that these are just two examples of, uh, you know, this bliss point and then this vanish vanishing caloric density are just two examples of Again, the science of making foods as palatable as possible, which many people maybe don't quite think about that 
these food companies are not in the business of promoting your health, really. They're just in the business of selling food. So, I mean, I, I want to talk a bit. I'm kind of curious as your take on the morality of it all and how what some of these people think about that. But that is the reality is they're there to move uh, as much product as possible. And when we're talking food, the more tasty it is and the faster you go through it, the better that is for them. Yeah, there's no reason to sort of think of them as this evil empire that intentionally set out to make us overweight or other or otherwise ill. These are companies doing what all companies want to do, which is sell as pro- much product as possible to make as much product as possible. And I, and I think that's especially useful to think about in terms of grappling with the bigger question, sort of how do we get out of this mess that we're in and how do we, how do we ease our dependence on highly processed foods and can the food giants sort of play a role in that transformation? That's one of the biggest questions out there facing us right now. And what are your thoughts on that? You know, my sense and my thought was always that, um, and I was certainly hoping that the book I wrote wasn't a scribe and a screed on all kind of processed foods. I'm kind of more about finding ways to gain control over them rather than let them control us and to figure out ways to sort of use, you know, not run away totally from processed foods because who can do that? I mean, who has the time or the financial resources to do that? So, uh, I mean, and, and processing is, I mean, we're talking about degrees of processing. I mean, yeah, right. o- o- oatmeal is, is a processed food to some degree. Cheese is a processed food. And, and let me tell you, there are wonderful cheeses out there that, that we shouldn't avoid. So the question is sort of how and what things can you, can you do to sort of avoid overeating and avoid kind of an overdependence on the foods. And again, going back to sort of the smartest nutritionists I know, figure out ways to kind of fill up half of your plate with vegetables and whole foods, which which seems to be kind of the agreed upon kind of solution and a path to better health. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, quickly, before we carry on, if you are liking my podcast, would you please help spread the word about it? Because no amount of marketing or advertising gimmicks can match the power of word of mouth. So if you are enjoying this episode and you think of someone else who might enjoy it as well, please do tell them about it. It really helps me. And if you are going to post about it on social media, definitely tag me so I can say thank you. You can find me on Instagram at Muscle for Life Fitness, Twitter at Muscle for Life, and Facebook at Muscle for Life Fitness. I'm curious, are there there any other interesting, just what really stood out to you in terms of the science of making foods uh, maximally satisfying and maximally easy to overeat like uh like the cheese puff example is yeah again it's just that that kind of stuff's kind of fascinating because we don't really hear much about this we we just kind of eat the cheese puffs or eat the doritos and go god these are so good <laughs> yeah i mentioned so i mentioned fats um you know play a huge role in some in some ways that they're almost kind of more powerful than than sugar they can kind of sneak up to you and in some products if you if you combine fats and sugar the break inside your brain, and I keep talking about that because that's the, that's the part of you that will help keep you from overeating. It can no longer sense the fat intake if there's some sweetness added to the product. The other interesting thing about fats too is that if you can see the fat, if it's oily looking in your food, 
you're apt to eat less of that food because look, fat has twice as many calories as, as sugar and carbohydrates. So the industry, so pizzerias, for example, are encouraged by the cheese industry because look, I mean, pizzas are basically vehicles for selling more cheese. That's why we have, you know, pizzerias selling pizzas with four cheeses in the crust and five more on top. They're <laughs> encouraged to hold the pie in the kitchen long enough for the oil that's been released by the cheese to congeal before it comes out to the table because people will eat more of that with the fat hidden inside uh, or, or rather in solid form. Salt is one of my favorites. So that, you know, the industry calls that the flavor burst because it's typically the first thing that hits the saliva in your mouth, which goes to the taste buds and, and, also sends that signal to the reward center of the brain. And the thing about the food companies, though, that really surprised me is that as hooked as we are, have become rather on their products and the huge amounts of salt, sugar, fat that they use to make them inexpensive and irresistible and convenient, the companies themselves or even more dependent on those things. It's because the science of salt, sugar, and fat to them goes far beyond the taste of the foods. And I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. At one point, I went to the biggest companies and I said, look, salt has become like public enemy number one because of its links to high blood pressure and, and maybe heart disease. And everybody's thinking they should cut back on salt. Why can't you guys cut back on the massive amount of salt in your products, because the vast majority of salt we get in our diet is coming from highly processed foods. And Kellogg's, again, uh, raised their hand and said, come on in, we'll show you. So I went to Battle Creek and sat down and they had prepared for me special versions of some of the biggest icons they sell in the grocery store, except in this case, they left the salt out entirely. And I have to tell you, it was one of the most awful dining experiences in my life because we started with the Cheez-Its, right? Which normally I could eat day in and day out. And without salt, we couldn't swallow them. They stuck to the roof of our mouth because salt adds texture and solubility to the product. We moved on to the frozen waffles and they came out looking and tasting like straw because salt adds color and taste. And then we moved on to the cornflakes, put them in the bowl, added some milk, took a bite. And before I could say anything, the chief spokeswoman for the company is sitting with us at the table. And she gets this look of horror on her face and swallows and blurts out the word metal, M-E-T-A-L. She says, I taste metal. I'm thinking, yeah, I do too. I felt like one of the fillings in my teeth has come out and is like sloshing around in my mouth. And the chief technical officer is there with us. He's the person in charge of all things scientific. And he chuckles a little bit and he goes, yeah, not everybody will get that. But one of the beautiful things about salt for us is that it will help mask or cover up some of the off notes, what they call, or the bad tastes that are inherent to sort of many processed foods. So salt, sugar, fat sort of provide these things in these products that enable them to sit on the shelf forever and ever, to, to have kind of the formulations that they do, to, to be 
incredibly inexpensive in ways that in your home cooking, you don't need to worry about. And so that's why when we cook, we can't get anywhere near the levels of salt, sugar, fat that the industry uses. Interesting. And you said inexpensive, and that's a big point as well, is that it makes the choice uh, harder for people to make between there's not just the palatability, there's also the time and effort that it takes to prepare your own food, then there's the cost. I mean, of course, it doesn't have to be particularly expensive to eat well, but it can be depending on what types of foods you are willing to eat, what types of nutritious foods you are willing to eat, or you can just go with, uh, you know, these cheap, delicious calories. And, you know, that, that, that's an important point for many people. Yeah, I think it's especially more expensive to eat well in the long term to sort of develop menus for yourself or your family that won't drive your kids crazy or, or you nuts after a week or two. That's kind of where the cost starts rising as you move from carrots, you know, in the produce aisle to Brussels sprouts or broccoli rob or, you know, some of the more quote unquote exotic kind of vegetables that are going to cost you more than cabbage. I think that's where you get hit by the cost and this incredible inequity or rather wrong in, in the world of food, which is that a well-meaning person can walk in the store meaning to buy a basket of fresh blueberries and have to pay as much for that as a two-pound, four-cheese, three-meat frozen pizza that's going to feed the whole family. And so over time, you know, who isn't going to be lured to the frozen aisle for that pizza? Absolutely. And I wonder how much the, of that, though, is due to availability. So, you know, I, I think of a story, I think this was semi-recently, actually, where CVS decided to stop selling tobacco products because it just wasn't in line with their values. And it, it was a projected loss of billions of dollars in revenue, a couple billion that was going to be lost, <laughs> but they did it anyway. And, and it actually turned out to be really good for them because of the publicity. You know, They ended up making up for the loss by just selling a lot more of other stuff because people thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I wonder, would anything like that be possible in the, in, in the food space where if some big company were to lead the way and actually educate people on, uh, there's not that much education that's needed. I think everybody knows that smoking is bad. Even smokers know it's bad. Well, everything you're talking about is probably maybe the market awareness isn't quite as high, but I think it's definitely rising quickly, especially these days. Do you think a big food company could kind of lead that charge and say, hey, we're not going to make these foods anymore. I know some people, you know, you, some people want them, but here's why we're just going to stop making them. And uh, this is more on a matter of principle for us. Yeah, I think so. To some extent, that can be really hard for companies because again, look, I mean, they, as they will point out and they do, they are beholden to shareholders as much as they are to consumers. So, so I remember talking to the, the founder of a big yogurt company, Greek yogurt company, who who was saying, look, he very much wanted to sell his yogurt at a lower sweetness, but didn't feel he could quite get there. So he was hoping that over time he could nudge his customers downward. And I, you know, I think there's sort of some validity to that. But I mean, there's there's a dozen things you'd want to do if you were wanting to change kind of the the food system in a way that would help encourage us to make better purchase decisions. Um, starting with farmers, I was really shocked to learn that 90 or 90% of the farmland in this country is planted in field corn, not the corn on the cob that you eat, but 
the corn that goes into animal feed or high fructose corn syrup or ingredients as processed foods, as well as soybeans. Only the rest, the 5%, is planted in fruits and vegetables and nuts and what have you. I think you'd want to change that ratio. And there's certainly lots of things grocery stores could do to sort of make it more convenient and more attractive to um, to go to the produce aisle and fill up on produce. There's a, there's a chain that started in the Northeast where half of the store is produce. And it's the first thing you see walking in the store. And they, they do things like have cooking demonstrations for asparagus, for people who've never cooked asparagus before and or got tired of their recipes. And they do things like package vegetables that they've washed and cut and assembled um, so you can pick up the package fresh and crisp and bring it home and make a stir fry without the added hassle. So things to make cooking easier. So yes, absolutely. And there are even some stores that are thinking of ways to expand the produce section of the store and maybe put produce in parts of the store where you would never found it previously. So now, knowing that people are so vulnerable when they get to the checkout lanes, what you're seeing more and more of are the soda companies putting coolers there to tempt us with that last mindless decision. But I know some of the big box stores, at least one of them, has sort of played with the idea of putting some produce coolers in the um, in the checkout lane so people might grab uh, a terrific apple or orange as an impulse buy. I mean, there's something to be said for that. I'm sure you know there's research on it that availability is huge, especially in grocery stores. Yeah, and everything about the store is designed to get us to make impulse decisions, to sort of get us off the shopping list, if we have one written down or in our heads, the the soft kind of la-la music that they play, the the layout of the store that steers us toward the center of the store and away from the extremes where the, where the more staples, the more, the more fundamental foods are, are, are sold, and the end caps of the aisles and the positioning of the foods in the stores, but especially kind of the checkout lane. And it, that's a theme that I think your listeners kind of being attuned to to their bodies and to exercising and things and really appreciate is sort of this this notion of sort of mindfulness. I I kind of keep coming back to that because so much about the highly processed food industry and the worst of their products has been engineered to make them mindless. So, you know, they started to put very sweet yogurt into little plastic tubes that kids could just kind of open up and suck on without even needing a spoon while they're doing. <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't think else. of that actually. And you know what? That's something else they're doing is they're they're toggling with the <clears throat> the computer game. And I think that's one of the that's one of the big things that got us into trouble was besides snacking in between meals and snacking poorly in between meals was losing that kind of focus uh, when we when we did eat. Mm, so being too automatic, I guess, in a sense, automatic in our shopping, in our eating. Yeah, because, you know, the primitive part of your brain kind of takes over. By some sense, we are we are evolutionarily designed to like food and eat lots of it. And and, and that kind of plays right into um, 
that plays right into the hands of the food companies. Definitely. And also to preserve energy, that's physical and mental. So like the fewer things we have to think about and the more we can just run on automatic, the less energy our brain needs to process things. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. One of the we are also designed to sort of look for things that save energy, and that's that's been true from our earliest days. So I mentioned this earlier, but I'm kind of curious if if there may there may be nothing particularly interesting on it, but I, still the morality of it kind of it just makes me wonder how the people that I guess pull the biggest levers in these in these big food companies can you give us a little bit of like just stepping in their shoes yeah. and seeing it from their perspective right. again because it is very easy to just label people as oh, well, they're just bad people or they're evil or, you know, but right. that's, that's, that's not the case. I mean, even in the case of true evil, a lot of the people like, you know, that did very bad things throughout, especially the 20th century were kind of right. like people like you and me, but happened to be Nazis or communists or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I was, I was really lucky in, in kind of doing the research in this area for the books that I'm writing and coming across this trove of documents that put me inside the largest food companies as they're doing the science and the marketing and the, and the selling of these products. The overwhelming sense you get from that material is they're driving day and night to get us to not just like their products, but to want more and more of them. Increasingly inside the companies, there have been people who've become alarmed uh, that they went too far. In fact, I, I opened the book, Salchigur Fat, with this meeting uh, back in the late 90s at the old Pillsbury headquarters in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where none other than a cabal of insiders at some of the biggest companies have brought their CEOs together um, to discuss none other than their growing culpability, not just for obesity, but for diabetes and other growing health problems in, in the country. And these insiders were urging their their CEOs to do something to kind of lessen their dependence on uh, excessive amounts of salt, sugar, fat, and, and to turn the corner and do something right by consumer health. So, and then when I met those people, and, and, and many of them had spent their entire lives creating and inventing and, and marketing things that, that are kind of poster childs for obesity and illness from processed foods, did in fact come to have misgivings about their work. And they they defended themselves in kind of two ways. One, that in their minds, they invented these products at a more innocent time when we were not as dependent on them as we came to be. And then two, they lived in a world where they didn't have to eat their own products. Their spouses typically didn't have to work, could feed the family with great cooking from scratch and didn't have to eat and buy their own products. So they, so they kind of lost touch with what it was like health-wise to, in fact, be dependent on their products. And it was, it was interesting. Some of those that did eat some of their products, uh, when they got into health trouble, they would immediately stop eating their own products, knowing that, like many of us, they couldn't come home in the evening and open up a bag of chips and stop with just a handful. They would, they would have to eat the whole bag. And that's an appreciation they gained kind of late in life, the power of their food to to sort of drive us to go beyond what we had planned to eat. And so that's obviously a point of cognitive dissonance where you're like, oh, wait a minute. Is this what I'm doing to a lot, to millions of people? Is this how it actually goes? Yeah, they're these incredible, you know, and, and some of these people have really turned a corner. I spent a whole chapter on Coca-Cola, uh, not intending to, but I met 
the former president of Coca-Cola for North America, South America. And he walked me through this sort of extraordinary things that the soda companies do to hook people on their brand at an early age. But he left Coke in the mid-2000s and went to work for one of the two largest carrot farms in the country, not only sort of selling a pro, you know a healthy product like that, but taking, stealing, if you will, some of the marketing strategies he had learned at Coca-Cola. Um, in, in this case, to kind of use fun and excitement to sell vegetables in a way that didn't preach to kids, but got them enthused about it. Um, I, th- I think the slogan for one of the first campaigns was like selling carrots as junk food, which is a really kind of interesting concept. In, in a pure world, you would hope you wouldn't have to advertise or market carrots like Skittles, but we're not quite in that pure world. So so I love how some of these guys and more and more of them and women are, are switching sides and taking some of the skills they learned for the junk food industry and applying them to healthy products and healthy restaurants and healthier lifestyles. Hmm, that's interesting. And it's also uh, even even from a, an economic and business perspective, I mean, I think that the trend is definitely going in that direction. I mean, it's becoming more and more popular to exercise, to care about your health, to be more mindful of everything that you're doing and you know what affects your decisions and your behaviors are having on not just your physical health, but your psychological health, your emotional health, your general well-being. Absolutely. And it's just not, it's not on the West, just the West Coast and the East Coast. It's in the the heartland too. I mean, I've given talks in Kansas where people are demonstrating that they are caring more and more about what they're putting in their mouths. And it's sad there because Kansas is this incredible food desert. I mean, some people have to drive dozens and dozens of miles to get to a grocery store. And, and, and even then kind of the produce selection isn't what it is. Um, the meeting of the food giants in, in, in the late nineties, where by the way, they spurned these efforts by insiders to get them to clean up their act and sell healthier products. Well, a couple of years ago, they met again in, um, in Florida at an investors conference and one after another of the heads of the companies had to report dismal profit earnings because not only are, are we caring more about what we eat, but that's starting to translate into into sales. And it doesn't take much of a drop in sales, a fraction of a percent, for the food companies to really feel it and go into panic and Wall Street to start pressuring them to start coming up with healthier ways. And I think that's the real crux of it for them is that can they turn that corner? Can they make healthier products They're all now trying to dial down on salt, sugar, fat, one after another of the products. But I'm not sure that's enough. And it kind of goes back to the produce aisle. And when you, again, talking to nutritionists, it's one thing to sort of cut back on the salt, sugar, fat of the Hot Pocket. And the maker of the Hot Pocket, Nestle, had me in to show me all the incredible things they're doing to reduce salt, sugar, fat using extraordinary science in the other direction um, in the Hot Pocket. But when you say to them, well, can you take that Hot Pocket and stuff it with Brussels sprouts or broccoli (laughs) rob, you kind of get this blank look on their face because it goes back to, you know, those things being more expensive and having less shelf life and being much more challenging. So, So I think there's a real question about whether the food giants can really play a significant role going forward or whether they will 
just be able to pretend to be healthier and foolish in, in, in that way. Yeah. Health washing is what it's called, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll probably be a combination, right? You, you have the market forces and then you also have just people like you out there educating people. And so as consumers um, change their habits, obviously you're going to have someone in the marketplace is going to take advantage of that. And yeah, some of, some of these big companies may not really be positioned to take advantage in the way as in the way that others can simply be by the nature of what kind of stuff they produce. I mean, for the hot pocket, I'm sure there'll always be a market for the hot pocket, but like you said, you know, if, if people are kind of like, well, yeah, I used to eat hot pockets every day, but now I'm just going to kind of stick to fruits and vegetables. Maybe I'll have a hot pocket a week. If that happens enough, uh, I don't know if there's any way to resurrect the hot pocket market or go back to the glory days. Right. And going back to kind of, you know, whether the industry is evil or not, I mean, I think the way forward is to find ways to help the food companies make money selling healthy stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that know, mean exactly? Like, how does that play out? Well, well, look, I mean, there's two ways change are going to happen. Either the government's going to impose kind of new regulations um, on the companies and kind of force them to change or the market forces and the things you kind of talked about. And look, this is starting with kids. I sort of wrote about the demise of the home economic system in schools where, where girls, but also boys to some extent, were taught how to shop, cook, be mindful of food in their lives, fell by the wayside as kind of other societal forces became Changes became more important to deal with the school. Well, schools are now starting to teach food again to kids. They're starting to mm-hmm. plant gardens in the school, which gets kids excited about things they never saw before, like a radish. And they take that excitement home and get their parents excited about radishes. So the next time they go shopping, that is an encouragement for the grocer to have asked the farmer to grow those radishes and and make them convenient to buy and eat and use in the grocery store. So I think, yeah, I think all of these things can be happening in a way. And that's all money. One of the one of the things I was surprised to learn is that the produce aisle is actually one of the best profit centers of the supermarket. Um, hmm. It's not necessarily a good thing for consumers, but it's because the supermarkets can set the prices. On the packaged goods, it's more the prices are set more hand in hand with the, the food manufacturers themselves. But in the protocol, they have complete control to set the price. And increasingly, the supermarkets are, are realizing that being one of their biggest uh, profit centers, perhaps they should be expanding the protocol, paying more attention there, finding ways to kind of nudge people into into the produce and fill up more of their, of their shopping baskets. So there you have kind of just economics and profit motive driving the companies, which I think is so much more practical and, and stronger than government intervention, which isn't going to happen. Yeah. And, or, or you know, ideological debates, uh, again, coming down to the things where if you can make them make the foods more available, and if you can make them easier to buy by for example, making them less expensive, or you'd mentioned this this grocery store that also is showing people, hey, here's some great way, great things you can do with these foods. That yeah, that I think that's definitely the way to go, as opposed to trying to force it through regulations. And that could be at a yeah. that could be at a business level or even an individual level, right? Where what what was it in in New York? It was like trying to trying to limit the amount of sugar that can go into certain types of uh, sodas or something like that. Like they, they just didn't, right, they just didn't right, do anything. Right. 
Yeah, no, that, that actually sort of backfired for other reasons. People thought that they would have to pay more for sodas by eliminating kind of the very big one. Maybe even legally, you mentioned tobacco. I mean, the, the way the tobacco turned and the way that the government had success legally in suing the tobacco companies was to kind of focus on the money. It was when the states got together and said, look, we're getting killed on our health costs from tobacco-related diseases. And they went after the tobacco companies not saying smoking was evil or smoking was bad or it's something people should do is that there is an inherent cost to smoking and you're making all the profit you should pay or help us pay for the downside the the flip side the health costs from people smoking there's certainly a huge health cost from bad diets from people being overly dependent on processed foods that can be kind of part of the equation Absolutely. And obviously, there's a large body of research to to support that. Uh, it's not as direct and immediate as smoking, but it's just as easy to, to show, hey, people that consume a lot of these foods, here's where they wind up. Start them at this age and then look at them here versus people that you know don't go down that road. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell people where can they find you, find your work? Um, obviously, I, I mentioned your book in the introduction, but if you want to mention anything about that or if you're working on a new project, whatever you want to tell everybody. I'm actually now working on part two to Salt Sugar Fat. It's called Hooked Food and Free Will, which dives into kind of this question of whether the junkiest food is in fact addictive, like some drugs, mm. um, whether that's a road we should go down and or whether there are some even other things about junk food and highly processed food that's kind of even more problematic for us, even even that addiction. And hopefully it'll be out either in 2018 or, or, or soon or soon after. Great. And you have a website that you'd like people to, to visit or like if they want to, I mean, obviously um, they can check out, they can check out your book. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, social so, media or anything. <laughs> so, so my website is michaelmossbooks.com. Okay. And uh, your listeners can find my email on that website if they, if they want to reach out to me with anything. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, uh, this was awesome, Michael. I really appreciate Good. it. Thank you. Excellent. My pleasure. Great talking to you. Hey there, it is Mike again. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it interesting and helpful. And if you did and don't mind doing me a favor and want to help me make this the most popular health and fitness podcast on the internet, then please leave a quick review of it on iTunes or wherever you're listening from. This not only convinces people that they should check the show out, it also increases its search visibility and thus helps more people find their way to me and learn how to build their best bodies ever too. And of course, if you want to be notified when the next episode goes live, then just subscribe to the podcast and you won't miss out on any of the new goodies. Lastly, if you didn't like something about the show, then definitely shoot me an email at mike at muscleforlife.com and share your thoughts on how you think it could be better. I read everything myself and I'm always looking for constructive feedback, so please do reach out. All right, that's it. Thanks again for listening to this episode and I hope to hear from you soon. And lastly, this episode is brought to you by me. (laughs) Seriously though, I'm not big on promoting stuff that I don't personally use and believe in. So instead, I'm going to just quickly tell you about something of mine. Specifically, my hugely popular and 100% natural pre-workout supplement, Pulse. It has sold over 250,000 bottles in the last several years, and it increases energy, improves mood, 
sharpens mental focus, increases strength and endurance, and reduces fatigue without the unwanted side effects that you probably experience with many other pre-workouts or the dreaded post-workout crash. It's also naturally sweetened and flavored and contains no artificial food dyes, fillers, or other unnecessary junk. And all of that is why Pulse has over 3,100 reviews on Amazon with a four and a half star average and another 500 plus reviews on my website, also with a four and a half star average. So if you wanna feel focused, tireless, and powerful in your workouts, and if you wanna say goodbye to the pre-workout jitters, upset stomachs, and crashes for good, then you wanna head over to www.legionathletics.com and pick up a bottle of Pulse today. And if you're not sure which flavor to get, I highly recommend Blue Raspberry. It's my personal favorite. And just to show how much I appreciate my podcast peeps, use the coupon code podcast at checkout and you will save 10% on your entire order. And lastly, you should also know that I have a very simple 100% money back guarantee that works like this. You either love my stuff or you get your money back, period. You don't have to return the products. You don't have to fill out forms. You don't have to jump through any other hoops or go through any other shenanigans. So you really can't lose here. Head over to www.legionathletics.com now, place your order, and see for yourself why my supplements have thousands of rave reviews all over the internet. And if for whatever reason, they're just not for you, contact us and we will give you a full refund on the spot.